morning, Highland. Good to see you all this morning. Let's open up our, our time in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you very much for this opportunity to come together and to worship you, to sing your praises, to prepare our hearts even for this Christmas season as we celebrate the birth of Christ and all that means for us. As we open up your word and look at an Old Testament prophecy talking about the birth and the power of Christ, uh, we just pray that you speak to our hearts today and help us to leave this room changed by the power of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so imagine this. It's 12.30 a.m. on New Year's Day, okay, and you are driving home from a New Year's party. Let's just say it was here at Highland, okay? Actually, I kind of like the sound of that. Since Jeff is gone this week, how about this? Jeff is in charge of planning a New Year's Eve party for the church this year, and uh, he'll be here praying in the New Year right at midnight. You can talk to him about it. He'll plan it all out and give you the details. I'm putting him in charge of it. Okay, so you're driving home from Jeff's New Year's party, right? And as you're driving home, you're headed to the east side of town, and it's a beautiful night out. It's spitting snow a little bit. It's 1230. You just want to get home. You're tired. And then out of nowhere on Bridge Street, another car darts out right in front of you, okay? And as you continue to drive, you start to be a little concerned by this car in front of you because it begins swerving from one side of the road to the other side of the road, back and forth, and the further you follow this car, the more you're realizing this person probably had way too much to drink at a New Year's party, and they're driving while intoxicated, while under the influence of, of alcohol. And in that moment, you're naturally nervous. You're confused and trying to figure out what to do. Should I pull over? Should I call the police? What, well, how, how should I respond to this? You're feeling unsafe being on the road with that person when suddenly, before you even have a chance to come up with a game plan, you see some lights right by the bridge. And they're not normal lights. They're red and blue lights. And not only that, you see a big barricade blocking off the bridge and police officers waving people over to the side. Okay? And as you pull up, you realize there's nowhere to U-turn. There's no left or right. You are stuck headed directly toward this barrier, which you realize is a sobriety checkpoint positioned by that bridge. Now, at this moment, you are having a very different reaction and thought than the driver in front of you, right? Isn't that strange? Because as you pull over at this sobriety checkpoint, you are feeling thankful, you are feeling grateful for the police officers who are sacrificing their New Year's Eve to keep people, innocent people, safe, to protect them. The driver in front of you is assuredly dreading the guaranteed punishment that awaits him or her when the police officer walks up, knocks on the window, and pulls out their breathalyzer, right? Isn't it strange how the same settings, the same police officer, the same barricade, the same evening, all the same factors can evoke such different responses from two people? One views the police officer as the protector of the innocent. The other views the police officer as the punisher of the guilty. And the way that you interpret and view the police officer is directly dependent upon whether or not you are guilty or innocent under the law. Okay? So as we think about that analogy, as we think about that illustration, I think that's helpful for us today as we dive into a book called Micah. Okay? The book of Micah. 
Because in the book of Micah, we really see these two portraits of God being painted. The first portrait is God as punisher. God as the punisher. God punishes those who are guilty. God punishes those who are unrighteous. God punishes those who continually disobey him. But the second portrait that Micah paints is God as the protector. God protects the innocent. God saves those who turn to him. God protects those who desire to have a right relationship with him. So you see both of these portraits. And just as the people driving the car, their interpretation of the police officer was based on whether or not they were guilty or innocent under the law, whichever portrait of God we see in this text is determined by whether we are guilty or innocent under his law. Okay? And the people of Israel, the people of Judah specifically, the country of Judah, that's who Micah was writing to. And Judah is composed of the two southernmost tribes, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And they desperately needed to hear this message because they were living in a way that was totally outside God's law and God's desire. This was a time period of the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah when they were absolutely in rebellion against God. They were committing all sorts of immorality. They were committing all sorts of idolatry. And they were committing all sorts of injustice towards one another. Kind of the big three that we see in the Old Testament often that God's displeased with. Immorality, idolatry, and injustice. It's not a very encouraging message for our culture, is it? I think that sounds a lot like us as well. But here they are, they're committing all these things, and God warns them and says, I'm going to punish you if you continue living that way. And he had just punished the nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes, so severely that they pretty much ceased to exist. In 722 BC, God sent the Assyrian army to come and to take captive all the ten tribes to take them into exile and essentially wipe them out. And the book of Micah is God's warning to Judah, the same is coming your way if you don't repent and get right with the Lord. That's what this book is is about. It's a book of warning against God's judgment and wrath against immorality and sin and rebellion, but also the book of Micah is filled with hope as well. Micah promises that God will save and deliver the righteous and the innocent. Both portraits of God are in this book, God as punisher and God as protector. But at this point, Let's answer the obvious question, the obvious elephant in the room. If God is the savior, the protector of the innocent and the righteous, then we have a major problem, don't we? Because no human being is righteous or innocent. If we look at God's holy standard, we have all fallen dramatically short. We are all sinful. We are all rebellious. We've all committed idolatry and injustice and sin. So how, the question that we're going to look at today is how can we go from viewing God as the punisher to God as the protector? How do we go from being declared guilty to declared righteous and declared innocent? And the answer is simple. We need a sinless Savior. And our passage today talks about this coming sinless Savior and how God sent him to fix a broken world. So let's look at our passage today in Micah chapter 5. I'll read the first five verses. It says this in verse 1. 
Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be numbered among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, God speaking here, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient, or, or a better translation, I think, eternal, from eternal days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand, and he shall shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. If we were to summarize today's passage with one big takeaway, one big idea, I think it was that, I think it's this. We need to realize that God's greatest Christmas present to us is peace. God's greatest present to us is peace. Our passage today crescendos to that last statement in verse 5, that Jesus, he shall be our peace. There's a promise of peace embedded in this passage, which I love. But even the idea that God is sending someone to bring us peace implies something else, doesn't it? You only need peace in a peacemaker when there's a lack of peace and conflict instead, right? So even the idea that we need a peacemaker, that someone's coming to bring peace, shows the nation of Judah, and also us as well, that when we're living outside of God's laws, when we're living outside of God's decrees, there's not peace with God. There's a brokenness. There's a conflict. There's a brokenness in that relationship with God. So to truly understand our need for peace, we first have to recognize how broken our relationship with God truly is. So point number one, if you're taking notes, you can write it down this way. We need to see our need for the Prince of Peace. Let's start there. We need to see our need for the Prince of Peace. And we really see that in verses 1 and verses 3. And at first glance, verses 1 and 3 can be a little bit confusing, right? This is Old Testament prophecy. We're not always sure what some of this imagery is conveying. But when we understand these two verses in their proper context, it's trying to teach us an important and universal principle about God's character. And here it is. God takes sin seriously. Okay, that's the message. God takes sin seriously because God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. He cannot turn a blind eye to sin. Think back to our opening illustration of the police officers in the sobriety checkpoint. Would they be good police officers if they let the car in front of you continue driving over the bridge? Absolutely not. They have to punish the wrongdoer. Well, God's the same. He's holy and he's just and he must punish sin by his very nature. In verses 1 and 3, we see the portrait of God as punisher. And this isn't new news to the nation of Judah. This shouldn't surprise them. From the very beginning of Israel being God's chosen people, from the very beginning of the Mosaic Covenant, he warned them that he would bless them if they obeyed, but he would punish and curse them if they disobeyed. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, you see an exhaustive list of the blessings and the cursings of the law. And the ultimate curse of the law is something called 
exile. It's something called exile. God told his people if they continued in injustice and immorality and in idolatry, that one day he would essentially disown them. He would send them into exile. He would send a foreign army to come to capture them, to drag them off, and he would say, you will cease to be a nation. As the book of Hosea says, God will say to them, you are no longer loved by me. You are no longer my people. I will no longer show you mercy. The promise of exile. And that exile that was foretold in Deuteronomy 28, that's what's being described in verses 1 and verses 3. Look at verse 1. It says this, Now muster your troops. He's talking about Jerusalem here, O daughter of troops, for Jerusalem is laid siege against us. And then it's conquered, and with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. What he's saying is there's going to come a time when Jerusalem is going to be surrounded, it's going to be sieged, It's going to be conquered, and the king is going to be utterly embarrassed. He's going to be smacked on the cheek with the rod of the conquering king, showing his utter humiliation. And in verse 3, it describes this exile by saying that God gave them up. God kind of gave them up. They're no longer his people until the Savior came and was born to bring all of the children back to God. And that prophecy was fulfilled within 200 years of it being given. In 586 BC, Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians. They came in. They destroyed the city. They burned it with fire. It was utterly demolished. And the final king of Judah, King Zedekiah, he was taken captive by the Babylonian king. He had his eyes plucked out in his humiliation. He was chained, and he spent the rest of his life in prison. The great kingly lineage of Judah had been broken and ended in humiliation. They needed a better king. They needed a righteous king. They needed a king who could truly save them, right? But in these first couple verses, we see the promise that God takes sin seriously. God punishes sin. And the people of Judah needed to hear this message and to take sin seriously because there were a lot of people in that day that completely contradicted this message. There were a lot of false prophets during the time of Micah and the other prophets that said, God's not mad at you. God's not upset. God, we're at peace with God. God's going to bless us. God's going to give us great things. Don't listen to these other prophets. We are absolutely fine. And the vast majority of Israelites liked hearing that message a lot better than the message of you are guilty and sinful and need a savior, right? That's not the popular message when you go and tell people they're living in sin and God's going to punish them for it. They listened to these false prophets instead and they believed that they were at peace with God when they really weren't. Because they still were allowing sin, immorality, idolatry, injustice to fill their lives. And you know, here we are 2,500 years later, and we find ourselves in a very similar situation, don't we? We find ourselves in a, in a country and a culture where the vast majority of people wrongly believe they're at peace with God. They believe that God's fine with them, that they're good, that God's happy with them, even though their lives are overflowing with idolatry, immorality, injustice, and, and, and sin. There's a lot of false prophets that tell us that God, is, God, God doesn't take sin seriously. You don't have to worry about it. Everyone's at peace, peace with God. There's a lot of people that think they're at peace with God because they pull out the scale and they say, I think my good kind of outweighs the bad. And someday at the final judgment, God's probably just going to measure things out. And I've tried to be a good person, so that probably means I'm good. I'm probably at peace with God, right? 
There's a lot of people who kind of, like the people of Israel in the Old Testament, pull out their religious checklist. The people of Israel said, we sacrifice to you, we worship you at the temple. But God in the book of Isaiah says, I don't delight in burnt offerings. I delight in obedience and righteousness. But there's a lot of people that say, I was baptized as a baby. I give to the church. I pray. I I, I try to read my Bible. Surely those good religious works means I'm at peace with God. But the reality is when we're trying to rely on our own effort and our own merit to make peace with God, it's a lot like this. Imagine that you have a billion dollar debt, right? Pretty, pretty substantial, much less than the 20 trillion our government has, but you've got a billion dollars of debt to someone, right? So you've got a billion dollars worth of debt and you decide you're going to try to pay this debt off by collecting pop cans and turning them in for the recycling money. Are you going to be able to pay that debt off? No. Are you even going to be able to pay $10 of that debt off, maybe in a year, right? Uh, no, right? You can't pay it off. That's, that's, that's absolutely foolish. Well, that's how it is when we try to use our good works to pay off our moral debt before God. We can't. We need someone else to pay the debt. And the reality, the reality is, when we're not at peace with God, when that debt goes unpaid, when we're found guilty under the law, the punishment for Israel, for Judah, was very clear. They were to be taken into captivity and exile as a nation. But God also makes it very clear for us as individuals, the punishment and consequence for our sin is far worse and far more severe. It's being eternally separated from God. That's how seriously God takes sin. It says in 2 Thessalonians 1, describing that punishment, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting punishment, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On our own effort, on our own works, we all deserve that punishment. On our own, none of us are at peace with God. Just like Israel, we need a Savior who can bring us peace. We need someone who can take us from being under God's punishment and viewing God as the punisher to bring us under God as the protector and viewing God as the Savior of our our soul. We need someone who can permanently deal with our sins so that we can go from being guilty under the law to declared righteous and innocent. And in verse 2, Micah changes his tone a little bit. He changes portraits and he begins to paint this portrait of God as protector, of God sending a Messiah, a king, a savior. You can fix it. You can put things right. You can redeem and save the nation of Judah and give them hope. But not just the nation of Judah, all of us as well. For the coming Messiah came to conquer sin, not just for one nation, but for all people. So for our second point in our passage today, as we look at verse 2, let's write it down this way. We need to find hope in God's plan for peace. We need to find hope in God's plan for peace. In Micah 5 verse 2, God begins to reveal the pieces of his eternal master plan to bring a broken and sinful world back into peace, restoration, and harmony. And he does it by using a specific person. And we see that in verse 2. There's this specific person who's going to come and fix things. And Isaiah would even tell us in Isaiah chapter 9 that his very name is the Prince of Peace. In this prophecy, 
looks forward to the anticipation of Jesus Christ coming, the incarnation. And then 700 years later, after this was written, Jesus did come. And he was born in the town of Bethlehem. The Prince of Peace was born. And in verse 2, we see some amazing details and descriptors that tell us what to look for in this Prince of Peace. What to look for in this coming Messiah, this coming Savior. Some characters of his, uh, characteristics of his job and his, and his accomplishments as well. So first, let, let's look at this verse. First, let's notice at the end of the verse, it says, "...whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days." Other translations of the Bible translate that last phrase, from eternal days. I think that's a better translation. Jesus comes forth from eternal days. That's telling us first and foremost that Jesus is the incarnational Savior. Jesus Christ is fully God and he became fully man. So this Savior that God was sending was none other than God himself. He came forth from eternal days. Jesus wasn't just a man who lived a perfect life. He wasn't just a man who attained divine status. He wasn't just a a gifted prophet. Jesus Christ was God himself, leaving the grandeur of heaven, the glory of eternal days to come into the created universe and be born as a helpless baby to save and redeem those who are guilty under the law. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. And in the incarnation, we see just how much God truly loved us. Because for God to pay that penalty for our sins, for us to go from guilty to innocent, it was extremely costly. But it cost us nothing. It cost God everything. For it was going to be he, him, him, it was going to be himself, it was going to be his son who had to pay the consequence. It was going to be his son that had to come into the created universe and be born. It was going to be his son that had to bear our shame, our guilt, and our sin on the cross. He was the one who was going to have to pay the penalty for our sins. To bring us peace, God knew that his plans meant enduring immense suffering and hardship himself. And there's no good way to illustrate this. There's no illustration that captures what God did for us. But I tried to pick something that we might resonate with. So imagine it this way. Imagine that somewhere over in, in the Middle East, there is a, a private first class who's out on an exercise drill with his troop of soldiers. And during this troop, he decides he doesn't want to be in the army anymore. He's tired of it. He's tired of the heat, the orders, the difficulties, the hardships, and he decides to desert his troop. So he does. He deserts his troop right in the middle of an exercise and runs off. But before long, guess what happens? The enemy captures him after he deserted his troop, and he's taken as a prisoner of war. Now imagine in this instance, here we have a private in the army who's taken as a prisoner of war because of his own wrongdoing. He deserted the company. He was a coward, right? And let's say that his five-star general, the, the main commander of all the armed forces in the Middle East, goes to the enemy and says, I volunteer to take his place. I'll be the prisoner of war if you let him go. That doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense. The five-star general taking the place of a private who who deserves that because he deserted his troop. That's a little bit of what Jesus did for us. 
I, I can't put into words truly all that Christ did, but that's it. The five star, the creator of the universe came in and even though we sinned and we deserved to be punished, we deserved to be taken captive for our sins, he came and said, I'll take their place. Jesus was the incarnational savior. But as we continue in verse two, we see another descriptor of Jesus. We get to see where he's born. It says, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah to be numbered, from you shall come forth for me. So we see that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And the inclusion of Jesus being born in Bethlehem teaches us something very important about this Savior. He's incredibly humble. He's incredibly humble. Jesus is the humble Savior. So when the author, when Micah includes that Bethlehem is little, right? Oh, little town of Bethlehem. He's not trying to be cute, right? It, it's really cute when we sing it in the song, oh, little town of Bethlehem, right? It's all oh, little town. Of, it, but that's not what Micah's trying to convey. What he's trying to convey is, oh, little, insignificant, worthless town of Bethlehem. That's really it. He's showing how small and insignificant this city is. And he's emphasizing that to show just how crazy it is that the Savior, the King, would be born there. Bethlehem was not the city of the socialites of Israel. It wasn't filled with the wealthy and the powerful. It was filled with a few hundred farmers, the people that were insignificant and overlooked in society. People would have kind of laughed when they heard that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. They thought he'd be born in a, a city of power, of prominence, of beauty, probably like a Jerusalem or something, but little Bethlehem? Absolutely not. So imagine it this way for a 21st century illustration. Uh, Amazon, one of the largest companies in the world, has recently been looking for a city to place its second headquarters, a $4 billion headquarters that they're going to develop in this city. And throughout the country, all the major cities are competing and showing off why they're the best city. They've got the best infrastructure, they've got the best culture, diversity, and they're all competing for the affections of Amazon, right? Well, let's say that it comes out this week that Amazon has picked their city. And they come and they announce the new city that will be the capital of Amazon's second headquarters is none other than Hogarty, Wisconsin, right? Hogarty, Wisconsin has been chosen as the city. How do you think America would react? It'd be a little confused, right? Hogarty? <laughs> 200 people in the town, Hogarty, right? Like, it just wouldn't make any sense. And they would say, why didn't you pick a New York, a San Francisco, one, one of these? Uh, there's other cities that deserve it a lot more. Why pick Hogarty? And that's the point. That's what God's trying to show. He says, if I would have picked a grand city, you would have thought you earned something from me. You would have thought you had something to boast in. Jerusalem got picked because it's beautiful. It's prominent. It's all, look at all the things it's accomplished. God says, I don't show my grace to those who boast in their accomplishments. I show my grace to those who realize how desperately they need it and how undeserving they are. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's what he's communicating here. God doesn't reward our merit and our achievement and our effort. He rewards those who recognize we are totally dependent on his grace and his mercy. Jesus was the humble savior. But not only that, Jesus being born in Bethlehem also models the type of humility that God wants to see in us. Jesus didn't feel entitled to anything. Here he is, the creator of the universe, the king of the universe, and he's born in Hickville, Bethlehem. He's sleeping in a stone feeding trough. He's born to two teenage parents that are probably scared out of their mind. 
And that's the plight that Jesus picked. He felt entitled to nothing. His mindset was one of sacrificial service. How can we model that type of sacrificial service this Christmas? I think that's a great application point for us. How can we model that type of humble, selfless service rather than being entitled, selfish Americans? So let's even think about this week. Before Christmas, how can we serve other people around us who need it? Rather than thinking of how I need to be served, to what I need to get, what all these things about me, let's, let's put the focus and say, how can I bless other people? Who are some older people in Highland that are in nursing homes that could use a visit and use a little bit of love this Christmas? Who are some people that I can intentionally write a, a handwritten letter or card to to really encourage? Can I take a little shift with one of my, my kids at the uh, Salvation Army and ring the bell for a while and just be a blessing to people? How can I serve other people this Christmas rather than making my family and my needs and my wants and wishes the focus of Christmas this year? Well, then lastly, the third description that we see of Micah regarding this coming Savior is this. Jesus is the obedient Savior. It says this, From you, from Bethlehem, shall come forth for me, for God one who is to be the ruler of Israel. And what's, what's going on there is this. God is the one who sends Jesus. It's God's will. It's God's plan. And throughout the New Testament, we see that time and time again, Jesus was totally and fully obedient to the Father. He never once pushed back. He never once said no. He fully and truly obeyed the will of the Father. Philippians 2 reminds us that he obeyed even to the point of dying on the cross. So why was that God's will? Why was it God's will to send forth Jesus only to die, to live 33 years, a perfect life, and then to die? Well, it's because that was the only way that he could be our substitutionary savior. Jesus lived the perfect life that we never could. He obeyed God's will completely. He was the innocent and the righteous one. And then he died the death that we deserved. He took our guilt and our punishment and our sin. And by dying on the cross and being raised again, that was the only way that God could do the great exchange. Where if we put our faith in Jesus, we receive his innocence and his righteousness and he receives our sin and our punishment. That's the only way that we can have peace with God. God's plan for securing our peace was radical and costly. And sending Jesus to be the Savior was the only way that he could do it. That's the only way that we can be declared innocent and at peace with him. So as we look at verses 4 and 5, as we close out our time this morning, we see what a life of peace truly looks like when Jesus is our Savior. So let's put it down this way. We need to trust in Jesus for eternal peace, for a third point. In verse 4 and 5, we get to see the portrait of what our lives look like when Jesus is our protector instead of our punisher. We get a glimpse of what a beautiful life under the authority of Jesus will be defined by. Look at verses five and, 4 and 5. It says, Jesus shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and they shall dwell secure. And then in verse 5, and he shall be their peace. We see three things. First, we see that Jesus can be our powerful shepherd. And when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, he's the good shepherd as he would say in John. He's the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep, and he's the good shepherd that if we put our faith in him, we know that he is leading us where we need to go. We have no need unmet in Jesus. We no longer have to fear anything, for he's 
the shepherd of our life, and he will take care of us. So whether we're walking through green pastures or dark valleys, we know that Jesus is leading us to the table of his mercy where we will get to dine and fellowship with him for all eternity. So Jesus is our great shepherd. The second, we see that we dwell secure. We dwell secure when Jesus is our Savior. And that is very true in the eternal sense. We will dwell secure for all of eternity. We will enjoy his reward, his happiness. We will enjoy that for all of eternity. But that dwelling securely can also be in this life as well. I immediately think of one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, Romans chapter 8. And I think that's talking about a life that's dwelling secure. Because in Romans chapter 8, it tells us that as Christians, we never again have to fear being separated from God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. There's no one to accuse us. There's no one to condemn us. There's nothing that can take away our security that we're right and at peace with God. And that when this life ends, we get to spend eternity with him. And we even have a visible reminder of that peace treaty. It's on the hands and the feet and the side of Christ, right? As the disciples, when Jesus reappeared to them, he showed them the scars so that every time we doubt, we can remember that those scars tell us that Jesus said it is finished and our peace is secured. And then lastly, we see Jesus says he will be our peace. We can have eternal peace. And that word peace in the Hebrew is a word shalom. And that word shalom means everything set right. That's what peace means. It means the curse of creation is removed, that life is as it's supposed to be. There's no conflict, there's no war, there's no brokenness, there's no sickness, there's no death. All of that is gone. Everything in the world is as it should be. God's great Christmas present for us is peace. He wants us to have that peace. He wants Jesus to be our peace. But that peace is only found by trusting in Jesus. There's no other source. The only way that we can experience that peace is to trust in Jesus as our Savior and as the great shepherd of our lives. That's the only way. By confessing our sin, by turning to Jesus and putting our trust fully in him. So as we close out our time this morning, we realize that the only way that we can go from God being our punisher to our protector, from guilty to innocent, is to have that sinless Savior who brings us over. And that sinless Savior is Jesus. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas, his coming. So as we close out our time this morning, I want to pose one more question. Remember our opening illustration about the two car drivers at Bridge Street? Well, let's say that today... You were standing at a checkpoint, but it's not a checkpoint that leads to the east side of Wausau, right? It's a checkpoint that leads into heaven. We're staying outside of heaven. At that moment, we have to ask ourselves the question, as God approaches me, am I going to be viewing him as the punisher of my injustice, the punisher of my sin, the punisher of my unrighteousness? Or am I going to view him as the protector of my soul because I know that Jesus has paid the punishment for my sins. Would I make it past the checkpoint? And the only right answer, the only way the answer is yes, is if we say that Jesus is my savior and he brings me through the checkpoint. So God's greatest Christmas present to us is peace. Have you opened it? Have you received that present through faith in Christ? Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this beautiful passage that reminds us so clearly of what Christ accomplished for us through Christmas, through the cross, through his entire 
substitutionary work here on earth. And God, we're so grateful that we know that Jesus can be our peace if we just receive him as our Lord and Savior. So Father, I pray if there's anyone here today who has never accepted that present, who's never received it, who's never believed in you, I pray that they put their trust in you today for the very first time. And for the rest of us, God, this Christmas, help us to remember that we need to model the type of humble service that our Savior did. Help us to look for the people that we can serve and love and encourage and share the love of Christ with this Christmas. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.